thanks for joining our weekly podcast. I'm Robin Lewis, founder and CEO of The Robin Report, uh, which, by the way, uh, is much more than a daily report. Uh, we really view it as a knowledge platform, okay, from, from which we communicate thought leadership on various strategic topics, yes, through the reports, but also these podcasts, webinars, and hopefully soon live events once this pandemic decides to get the heck out of here. Uh, And for these podcasts, which so far have been mainly a conversation between me and our chief strategist, Shelley Cohan, by the way, is also a professor at FIT and Syracuse University, we decided that from time to time, uh, depending on our topic, we would invite an expert to join us. And expert, in my opinion, would be a huge understatement to introduce Kevin Roach. Uh, Kevin has the credentials and the vision uh, to put design front and center in any retail conversation. Um, As a design professional and retail industry leader, his background includes over 40 years of global experience across Asia, the Middle East, the Americas, uh, and Europe. And here's an important thing that he, he does. He integrates strategy, planning, design, and architecture alongside classic marketing operations merchandising, finance, and C-suite strategy. It's a very difficult thing to do in most organizations, but that is just exactly what he does. He's been very successful at doing doing it. Most recently, as uh, Senior Vice President of Design and Construction, he led LVMH's and DFS groups leading Galleria and travel retail sectors. So, Kevin, Shelly and I are truly honored uh, to, to discuss with you today why design matters, right? A, a topic that, in my opinion, most leaders in the industry don't strategically understand and fewer understand how to infuse it uh, into their models. Uh, so, Kevin, I'd like to give a brief bit of context for our listeners today. And the first thing I would say is that <clears throat> Design and architecture have always taken, uh, in my opinion, a back seat in too many boardrooms, okay? And good design is usually taken for granted, even when it delivers results. It's true that design can often be kind of an invisible part of the strategic mix, yet it is what makes great customer experiences. So, Kevin, we're here today to underline that design matters, actually, it may matter the most in this new world we are now in. And it should be embedded into any executive team and recognized by the board as an equal, an equal to the chief marketing officer, experience officer, human capital, all of it. And now, um, Shelly and I have the good luck to discuss this with you, Kevin. As I said, you have the creds, so to speak, as, oh, and also as an award-winning international designer uh, who has been the chief architect, literally, of many iconic retail destinations. So, 
Kevin, let's start off with, uh, uh, you, with, with a little bit about your recent projects. Thanks, Robin, for the generous introduction. I'm, I'm humbled and flattered, and uh, I, I really appreciate uh, these comments from someone with your exposure and breadth of experience and perspective, you know, in, in retailing around the world and, and, and in the U.S., you know, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> thank you. Back to you. <laughs> but you deserve it, okay? Yeah, working for LVMH, you know, one of the things I realized is you can't be too creative, you can't be too innovative, you can't be too tasteful, and you can't be too curious, uh, and, you can, and you can never stop asking the question, you know, why not? You know, <laughs> over the uh, past 10 plus years, I probably presented to Mr. Arnault, you know, at least every six to eight weeks, you know, various projects. And, you know, if someone asked me, what were your takeaway? I, that would be it. You have to begin with Samaritan Paris. Samaritan Paris has been written about by your team and, and many, many others, you know, it's a billion US dollar investment. I used to say the last thing Paris needs is another department store. Um, and so, you know, it, it, I spent 10 years working on this project. I mean, it's one of those projects where sometimes everything goes wrong. Sometimes everything goes right. Everything went right, despite the complexities and the hurdles that are too numerous to talk about. That's a whole other podcast, how to put a project like that together. You know, and, and then followed by uh, the Fendaco in, in Venice. You know, I was sent to Venice to look at a, uh, a building built in the 1500s. And said, you know, and they, the group said, what do you think? Should we do this project? And uh, it was a partnership with the Benetton family who owned the building. Ultimately, the city of Venice owns the building. You know, it's been there that long. But we did that project. And again, another, you know, life-changing event. Uh, that one went really quick, uh, three years from the time I was on site to the time we opened the store. Um, you know, and all these are significant investments, as you can imagine, building in the middle of Venice on the Grand Canal. The Bon Marche and Grand Pisserie, you know, I, I moved to uh, Paris to start that project my second time around with LVMH, working on the master plan and what was to be a five-year complete overhaul, repositioning, renovation of this iconic, you know, destination in the world up there with Selfridges, uh, the Caribe in Berlin, you know, these, these yeah. or Dorf in New York, all in their own right for all reasons, one of a kind. And then the work in Asia, you know, we call it follow the money, you know, uh, I mean, the Chinese, as we know, have a big impact on luxury goods around the world. So we did significant projects in Hong Kong and Cambodia, uh, 18 flagship stores in the Changi Airport, over $500 million a year in revenue and just spirits and wine. Um, and, and one of the great experiences of my life is going to Istanbul probably 30 times in three years doing a flagship store for a group called, called Bayman. So the, these, are, these are really examples. Before I left the end of 2019, we were looking at new developments, some of these mixed-use developments in Japan, Thailand, Australia, Korea, et cetera. And now currently, as I mentioned to you previously, you know, I'm being called back to the group and we're starting some new projects for Moe Hennessy, which are really, really exciting in, in, in various parts of the world. So... That's what's current. Yeah. Wow. That, that's amazing. Kevin, I was so excited when Deborah, our COO, suggested you for our podcast. I've spent a lot of time during my career in retailing, and I've always known that when a great design is created, it definitely elevates that customer shopping experience. 
And in those retailers in those countries that you just mentioned, they seem to really place, you know, design somewhere near the top of their priority list. So why do you think design has really gotten the short end of the stick, stick so to speak, in the executive leadership teams in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you have to get a bit analytical. I know later we'll talk about analytics about this, but, you know, I often hear about the right brain and the left brain people and that we're wired differently and we think differently. And, you know, some of this, and it's been written, you know, may, may, be, a, may be a myth. Obviously, there are personality differences and different people have different talents and so forth. And, and you know, one needs to consider that because some, some of us lean one way and some of us, you know, lean another. I think the notion that, you know, the right brain and the left brain being the creative half and, 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 and the left is the analytical half, you know, th th those, are, those are probably real traits and, and it's widespread and talked about in popular psychology as we know. I think this theory suggests that traditional left brain leadership is really often uncomfortable discussing and making decisions around these right brain topics because they can't they can't analyze it. They can't put it on a spreadsheet. What I find, you know, is that the true visionary leaders running these innovative groups and corporations, no matter their training, their left brain, right brain dominance, are creative. It's the nature of what they do. You know, they're creating, they're creating businesses. I think there's a reason, though, however, why we go to college and we get degrees in certain disciplines that, you know, that we spend our lives, you know, reaching excellence, you know, in, in that particular discipline. And I used to talk in the group, you know, we should all work in our lane and then they come together at the intersection. So stay in your lane, I'll stay in my lane. And then they all come together and how we synthesize that, you know, I think it is the magic of, of this integration that Robin talked about. I've experienced, you know, traditional retail executives you know, pushing, uh, pushing design or over their real estate, over to the real estate facilities or operating teams, you know, I mean, time in, in one of the groups, I reported to an operating executive and he was all about, you know, sales per square foot and productivity and things. Why? Or they'll put it into marketing because they think it's so-called creative. So it's nothing <laughs> in marketing, right? And, and, you know, you go to school for marketing, you go to school for architecture. And so, these disciplines are real, and, um, and, and I think it's a discipline that the traditional business trained executives just are uncomfortable with. Yeah, I mean, I, that certainly makes sense, especially talking about the left and the right brain and the leadership in our industry. Um, so as a follow-up, though, why do you think design should have a seat at the executive or even the boardroom tables? Well, you know, it's, and I, I hope I'll demonstrate this, it's woven into everything we do. Design, as I like to say, is being more than just how something looks. It's not about color selection or what the material is. It's how something works, and design is woven how something experiences. It influences the point of sale. It influences the point of customer interface. It influences, you know, everything, everything that a traditional retailer, non-traditional retailers to do. I happen to think the future of retailing is about how the creation and control of the way we deliver experiences and merchandise seamlessly, how that comes together, that it must be inherently woven into our culture and a clear set of non-negotiable standards and rigorously directed as the creation of the products, the business plans, the operating principles, the IT group, advertises, social media, et cetera. You know, in my career, you know, working with the Dior, Chanel, Hermes, Cartier, you name them, the examples go on, 
you can pull your hair out. It's maddening. You want to jump off a cliff. And I've often said, well, why? Because they are, they are, um, it is not up for discussion to challenge the way they do things. They are, their discipline around their standards, as I say, is non-negotiable. It's what makes them great. And design is at the center of that. You know, most of the consultants talk about, you know, in, in conferences, they'll reference, you know, Hermes or Apple. How many times have heard Apple reference, right? Or Dior, the Amman Hotel Group, Porsche. There are many, many examples. Design is at the top of the pyramid of those groups. It just is. Um, and, and, and when you, when you let, let's watch what LVMH does with Tiffany's. I will, I will predict that design in all its definitions is at the top of how we start to experience and relate to that brand. Look what they did with Ramoa. Ramoa in Germany was a mass market luggage company. There's a great book I love. It's called Do You Matter? Uh, how a Great Design Will Make People Love Your Company. I, I really use it as a textbook by Robert Bruner and Stuart Emery. It's, it's fantastic and it's a must read. You know, Kevin, <clears throat> you, you, great clarification, okay? You really bring design to life in a way that I haven't really heard it, uh, you know, defined. And you're doing a great job of that. And I agree with everything you're saying. Um, design has to be on top. And it just isn't enough. So anyway, but in its, in its viewpoint, it's not just art. So I don't know, expand a little bit on how design does make a difference and both the good and the bad. Okay. I mean, you know, I, I came up with this phrase, I don't know when, and it's it stuck with me. I think I was in a meeting. I said, guys, let's don't sacrifice the experience for the growth. I mean, in other words, speed, cost cutting, prototyping, you know, let's drive growth from the quality of the experience. Just a flip of the way you think about it. Um, I, I used to say when I said Paris doesn't need another department store, so let's consider we're selling stuff, we're selling products no one really needs at the end of the day. When you really strip back need, it's not about need. It's about creating these ideas of socially relevant moments and creating desires that really matter to the consumer. I, I, I remember recent interviews you had with Gary Friedman, Restoration Harder, Rick oh, yeah. They're visionary. They're innovative. They're disruptors. They're risk takers. And design is very close to them. And it's a key discipline seamlessly woven into the mix and what they deliver. I mean, that's their end result. So, you know, that's, those, are, those, those are good examples. Generally, those are first-generation creators. You know, yep. they're designing their businesses, their customer experiences. They're more than a CEO maintaining a business to pass on to someone else. Years ago, I worked with Les Wexner, and you know, years and years ago, when he had Express Limited and 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 um, Victoria's Secret, you couldn't deliver enough design. Every week, we right. were design, design, design. And I'd say one time, you know, we're going to get in trouble for the millions we're building. And they said to me, Kevin, if he figure out what he wants to do and to grow this business, it doesn't matter. You know, so, so, you know, it occurs to, to me that many tried and true American retailers lost this sense of curiosity. They lost their appetite for evolution for the sake of scaling. More space, more sales, more space meant more profit, you know, and more, and, and therefore more space meant more meaning to the customer. I think it was the beginning of the, 
of the you know downturn for the yep. American retailer. Totally, totally agree. And have you met Gary Friedman? I have not met Gary Friedman. I, I, I would love to introduce you. You guys would, you, you, your conversation would go on for hours, if not yeah. days. I mean, he's phenomenal. Yeah. And I, I, I do know that you uh, met with, um, with uh, Rick Caruso. Yeah. And he's another giant in my estimation. The conversation did go on. <laughs> it did? Yeah. It did. And, and it's getting reason. And another one's following next week. So thank you. Oh, great. All right. So tell us when you're advising your clients and are beginning one of your projects, um, what is, let's say, the three most important considerations in, in applied design? I remember when I went to Paris to present uh, the Venice project to Mr. Arnaud and Mr. Bologna and Jean-Jacques Guigny, uh, the top three gentlemen. At LPA. And, and the first question is, tell us what the story is. Um, you know, is there a big enough vision? What is the story? Are we adding layers of value and why? There's another great book called Dream Society by Rolf Jensen. It talks about the story behind your business, behind your brand. And again, when you talk to Gary and Rick Crusoe and Gary Friedman, they talk about their story. Um, you know, the practical side, are the schedules and budget expectations realistic? realistic? You know, whether it's champagne taste, beer budget, or, you know, I want you to be brilliant, but get it done in the next six months. Um, you know, you have to align those practical things. Um, and what are the business drivers and metrics? I mean, that has to be balanced in. Otherwise, I call it, it's a school project. <laughs> and, 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 and context is everything. Um, you know, context can mean many things. What you do in Venice is not what you do in Paris, is not what you do in Hong Kong or not what you do in New York. And, uh, and that's woven into every one of the business disciplines within a group context. Well, Kevin, I think Robin would call me a left brain wonk. I love <laughs> metrics, I love analytics, um, maybe a little less on the creative side. Um, but tell us, you know, I have to ask you, how would you measure the effects of design? Well, you know, design like marketing can be hard to measure, you know, uh, it, it, you know, the traditional advertising market, it can be very hard to measure. And, and, and many times you have to take, I, I think, long-term view is, is often, you know, not in abundance. So, you know, this book called Aesthetic Intelligence by Pauline Brown, she's an ex-LVMH executive. She talks about studies have shown emotions, not analytical considerations drive 85% of purchase decisions. And so, you know, this idea of brand love, you know, what is it? You know, what is it I love? You know, okay, I could say I love my Porsches. You know, I, my wife loves her Hermes bag that she saved 10 years to buy. You know, I love my Balvini scotch. You know, I love Four Seasons in Chiang Mai. It was an experience of my lifetime. I love going to the Bon Marche Food Hall on Saturdays. I love Selfridges. I love Amazon, right? So, you know, how you measure that is it can be soft. Um, it cannot necessarily be measured by, uh, you know, how much was invested or this week's sales. You know, a lot of articles written is, you know, will LVMH's billion dollars spent on Samaritan pay off? You know, how do you measure that? Um, some experiences, as I say, just can't be measured, you know, in, in traditional methodologies within a short time framework. I, I like to think about how do you consider the balance of both quantitative and qualitative together. Analytics tends to be 
quantitative. And the qualitative side oftentimes is forgotten about because it's a soft side. Um, and in most analytics, you know, look back at what happened to predict the future. You know, okay, these are what the numbers are telling. So therefore, that's what's going to happen in the future. And we all know from the pandemic, that's more difficult, right? So I think it takes, you know, long-term patient leadership with big visions, you know, to really measure this. And in the end, those results over a long-term proof of concept by the brands I've mentioned previously. Yeah, you know, uh, Pauline Brown, by the way, is a good friend of ours. And we did a webinar with her, I believe, um, several months ago. I can't remember exactly when it was. But she's terrific, and the book is terrific. And it really does uh, bring your philosophy uh, to the front. And, um, you know, I, I, you know business, businesses view marketing and advertising and design uh, in many cases as a cost and I've always said that they should be viewed as an investment, should be under the investment column in whatever they're doing. But be that as it may, this is, you know, what we have. But uh, Kevin, on to another subject here. You, you've been a globetrotter in your career, as, as you mentioned um, in the beginning, uh, a few of the countries you worked in. So just, you know, where and how does design excel? globally, okay? Yeah. Uh, do different cultures uh, regard design differently? Yeah. I, I think that, you know, in many parts of the world, still traditional retailers, I find this may be harsh, but talk down to their consumer. They still see their business as a distribution model and profits driven by operating excellence <laughs> and managing expense. Uh, in my mind, this is way too narrow uh, for a meaningful, what I call go-to-market strategy. You know, there will always be someone else cheaper and faster, right? So when I think about the hospitality industry sector, I think of them as talking up to their guests, the best of the class, the best of class get. They're not just selling, you know, a night in a bed. Um, here's a great quote from the CEO of Belmont Group. Um, LVMH company, and think of you a retailer, you said, every property is remarkable. Macy said this, every property, not just one, is remarkable in its own timeless story to tell. Yet the hallmarks of the Belmont brand thread through them all, all heritage, craftsmanship, and a reputation for genuine, unscripted service create exceptional experiences that stir the soul. That's their positioning. That's their story. That's their vision. That's their non-negotiable across right. every property. I think retailers and hospitality companies are more or less the same, offering different product. And the more I think retailers look at hospitality, the more I think they'll be inspired. You know, world-class design, I think, is globally universal. Yes, there are cultural differences. It exists greatly. Context and cultural execution based on these differences can mean, can mean everything. Consider the Italians, what they're famous for, the French. The Germans and their engineering, the Chinese are an emerging powerhouse in cultural creativity. And the Americans, you know, they're on time, they're on budget, they have agendas, they're efficient. You know, there can be great differences influenced by these contexts. However, it's like art at its very best. It's hard to explain why great art is just great. 
regardless of the culture or the artists or where they come from. So I think the borders are more seamless. And I think the more the traditional American groups look seamlessly around the world and not have a nationalism point of view, the more rich and the more exciting these experiences will be. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, values is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> so, yeah. so, Kevin, another question here that may be up close and personal. Are designers intrinsically different from other members of, of the executive team? You know, do they have a different DNA, so to speak? Every day I'd go to the boardroom, I'd say, yes, we're different. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, perhaps, yeah, the DNA is different. You could say that, I think. Um, you know, as I said, most U.S. or traditional retail corporates define design more narrowly, I think, than they should. Creativity, visual intelligence, executive design leadership, I don't think can be regulated in this no rules, accelerating, everything is accessible in the palm of your hand, everything is integrated, seamless distribution, 24-7 communications are where we live in. Design is influencing all of that. And to work effectively in that world, um, you know, you have to integrate it. So I, I think uh, we, we are intrinsically different because it's a different discipline. We're talking about bringing that discipline into parity with the CFO, right? Um, the process yeah. and commitment of this discovery, you know, towards breakaway creations is really not trivial as running the financial part of a major organization is not trivial. You know, design is about taking risk. It's about <clears throat> process of creation. It can be both scary and it can be very personal. You're, you're delving into the unknown, right? The process of creation. I find most business executives, they really get uncomfortable when you talk about the unknown. When you talk about working in the metaphysical world, that which can't be measured analytically. Right. You know, the discovery of what cannot be reached through objective studies, the material thing, analytics, you know. I mean, when you talk about concept and theory and creation and the unknown, um, you know, it, it takes courage and it takes, it takes leadership. I also believe in, you know, we're born with God-giving talents and tendencies. I also buy into the Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule in our environment <laughs> growing up. You know, environment and that 10,000 rule can mean, can mean everything. So it's about what we dedicate our lives to, to be excellent in, and in there lies the differences. Wow, that's really provocative. I have to ask you, you know, given your global experience, I mean, you've practically been everywhere and everything you've seen, you know, what inspires you? You know, um, at this time in my life, as I think we said, 45 years in career, so you can do the math. I graduated from architecture in 1975. What I, what I really reflect on is the fearless young talent, literally from around the world, with unbelievably cultural diversity. They're global citizens of design. They're global citizens of the arts and culture. And these folks really inspire me. You know, I, I just did some mentoring with a young student from my hometown in Cincinnati. I said, get out of town. You know, imagination uh, is endless. Innovation can inspire by absorbing the world around us and interpreting how it can inspire your business, your brand, your customer experience. So, you know, absorb everything. I mentioned books, absorb it all, go everywhere, see everything, absorb everything and reinterpret it in ways and that's where innovation comes from. 
you know, I, I really am motivated by the trust and support versus command and control leadership style. That takes courage. And that has inspired me. And I've worked under both. And, and, and believe me, I resigned from one and I'm returning to the other. <laughs> we, don't, we know, we know <laughs> which, which, you know, and, and, I, and I think, you know, I've been inspired. I'll give you one example. I, I was asked years ago to go to look at Starbucks in Europe by the Starbucks people. And I went to Vienna coffee center of the world and I saw these silly green umbrellas and what I call this toxic creeping sameness of rollout of Starbucks scaling remember scaling oh yes you know and now you look at their 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 uh Starbucks reserve in Shanghai they just opened the mixology cocktail bar they're serving (laughs) drinks I mean you know you know talk about evolution and what they've done in the last 10 years, I think is remarkable to deal with this idea of context and curiosity and adjust and adjusting to, you know, this constant innovation. That's those kinds of things inspire me. Well, I certainly think you have two major trends that really play into what you said. One is that, you know, these young generation, this young talent that you're speaking of, they love traveling. They've traveled more in their lifetime um, at their young age than a lot of people our ages. And also, they're a very inclusive and diverse generation, probably the most inclusive and diverse generation of, of our time. So, um, so when you're out, you know, what retail design do you admire other than your own? What really takes your breath away? Um. Most anything that I've seen or anyone's work that's on a continuous journey of discovery, you know, with the courage to be curious, push the envelope to improve, you know, what, you know, what business they're in and, and how, how, how to be great. I use that example of Starbucks. I mean, you know, I admire their courage to break out. Um, you know, I think what, the, what they're doing is, is just re- remarkable. And, 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 and to be on this, any group that's on this continuous cycle of investment in innovation and of evolution, you know, this idea that scale by itself is not sustainable. I, I love this word, toxic creeping, saying this, you know, just more of the same, more of the same is just not going to mean anything as we go forward. Hermes, Rudisev, Paris, years ago, they abandoned their traditional codes and they built a store in a, in a public, in a, in a, in a, an abandoned public swimming pool. <laughs> it's spectacular, you know, and, and it's not that the designer did spectacular work. He did. The CEO decided to do something spectacular. It starts at the top. It takes great clients to do, to do great, you know, inspiring work that, that I admire. I mean, there are many, many examples. Again, I'll go back to restoration hardware and Caruso Enterprises, the Belmont Hotel Group. I could go on. Uh, it's happening out there. But I, what I don't like is I think the word retail is limiting. I wish there was a better definition for the word retail because we immediately just think of stores. And I think the traditional retailer needs to get out of that box and look beyond and figure out why the hotel industry is relevant to them. You know, Kevin, thank you very much. I. Um you know, occasionally give presentations on the retail industry, past, present, and future. And um, in so many of them, I start out by saying, you know, the words retail store should be eliminated from our vocabulary. Because when you hear or read retail store, 
your mind automatically views a building full of stuff. So, yeah. I, yes, we need a new word. Shelly and I have been discussing that as well. Um, uh, a platform, you know, but, it, but it's difficult. I don't know what you would call it, but that's, that's for another podcast maybe. Yes. Um, anyway, back to your relationships with clients. Uh, what advice uh, do you have for <laughs> the many retail CEOs uh, to give design a more prominent role in, in their organizations? I mean, I think the first is, you know, acknowledgement, right? Go to your, go to your, uh, your shrink or your counselor and admit that you need to acknowledge that design is important and it's as critical profession. Uh, it's, it's capability, it's resource and going to the market. I mean, you, you, you know, you have to acknowledge and come to grips with that. It may be something you're uncomfortable with. And, you know, be visionary. Uh, these second, third, fourth generation, you know, I call them maintenance CEOs, um, you know, need to take risk. They need to have courage. They need to deliver visionary experiences and they need to delve into the unknown. And many are uncomfortable with that. It's all about the quarter results. And, you know, uh, and, and you, you look at these first generation leaders, Gary, Rick, you know, Les back in the days, you know, these are risk takers. Uh, so it's courage. Invest. You mentioned that, Robin. Invest in design leadership, invest in talent, invest in their resources and give them the authority, not just the accountability to create and be innovative. Again, trust and support versus command and control. You know, corporate design at its best, you know, must be supported by this visionary robust foundation of a long-term commitment to world-class relevant intelligent experiences. Wow, Kevin, uh, another question for you, because you have such a worldly view um, that, you know, how do you envision the future of stores, showrooms, 3D printing factories, makerspace, entertainment? What do you see? Well, you know, I mean, America's a big country. So obviously, CEOs go to scaling to build shareholder value, right, for growth. I think it's less about scaling. I mean, scaling, I mean, Amazon scales. Okay, I don't mean this, it's not black or white, but it's less about scaling and more about what I'll call these socially relevant destinations. Easy to talk about, very hard to deliver. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's sometimes it's magic. It's less about retail, as we've talked about. It's more about delivering places where your customer would rather be and rather return to. Where do you like to go? Where do you love to go? Where do you choose to spend your time? People spend their time. People spend their money where they spend their time. I think also how one bundles or curates what I'll call their 360 offer will be the key, perhaps the magic sauce. Again, think restoration hardware. How do they bundle and curate? You know, hotels, airplanes, you know, Italy, Westfield Century Sitter, Century City. Is it a restaurant? Is it a food market? <clears throat> wine store? Is it a bakery? What is it? Um, so I think bundling and curation are going to be key. Wow. Well, as a professor, um, a lot of what I do is I really try to advise students about the future. And we actually cover store design uh, in, our, in our courses. But so if you were to give advice to the next gen architects, designers, you know, who, who would you say, what would you say to them? 
And what would you tell them about a future in this career? Yeah. I mean, in this career of retail, again, I, I would, I would imagine beyond the word retail, you know, the description of retail, as we've already said, is just too limiting. You know, we need a new descriptor. So if you're talking about folks from FIT or, you know, people who are really focused on this kind of retail fashion or what, not just fashion, but broadly defined, you know, I think beyond that, you know, become a global citizen, as we've talked about, absorb the world we live in and everything. Yeah, I think they must live, they must work, you must experience this world of arts, communications, design, theater, hospitality, absorb everything and reinterpret it in new ways. I, 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 it's mind-blowing for me the amount of talent in the world, having worked all over the world. Uh, you know, you get out there and, and, and take risk and, and, and experience that. There's just, it's mind-blowing. Find a few mentors along the way. Young talent needs mentors. And it can mean a difference in your career. And, uh, and I think that's important. And find your blend of bravery. Find your blend of humility and find your blend of humanity, which puts you in touch as a global citizen of what people care about. Perfect your craft. I mean, really perfect the tools in your toolbox. Continually polish your life skills. Uh, it's not just enough to be a world-class talented great designer. You have to become a great listener. And you have to become a brilliant communicator. You know, what a, what a great way to wrap this up. You know, what, what a nice message about our young, younger generation who are really going to um, inherit a challenging world. But, uh, you know, the few words you just talked about here, Kevin, I think are terrific. And, you know, your reputation does precede you, um, your incredible career and still going, I might add, it really has filled you with a level of knowledge uh, that I believe few people could really match. And you communicated so well today. So Kevin, I, I know I speak for Shelly and our audience that we learned a ton and we deeply appreciate your participation. Well, thank you, Robin. I, I deeply appreciate sharing my beliefs and my passions. Uh, you know, it polishes, it, it sharpens your pencil. And, uh, and I, I continually, you know, at, at, at 69, soon to be 70, uh, continue to work on this idea of bravery, humility, and humanity. Thank you so much, Kevin. Those are just great words to end with. Thank you so much. For our listeners, you can find more of our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout, and therobinreport.com. And follow us on social media, link in with us. And follow us on Twitter for the latest thoughts about the industry. You know, and lastly, <laughs> as I always do, I, I want to thank our audience very much for joining us. And uh, once again, uh, I'm going to sign off by saying that, uh, Kevin, that you're one of the greats. So, um, and by the way, uh, if anybody in the audience is ruminating over a topic that you would like to hear Shelly and I address, please email me at robin at therobinreport.com. Thanks again.